You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome wherever you are. Um, we're expecting to have an audience that's in various places around the world. Um, my name is Alex Holman. I'm the chair of Hellenic Studies program at the University of Washington. And I'm just going to say a few remarks before I hand over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Nectaria Klapaki, who will introduce our speaker for today, um, Dr. Panayotis League. Um, I just want to say a few words about who we are in the Hellenic Studies program at the University of Washington, um, how we got started. Um, we started in 1998 through the efforts of um, the late professor Ted Kaltsounis and the help of the Greek American community of Seattle, uh, without whose help we, we wouldn't be here. And the vision behind the program was initially to provide a place where modern Greek culture and modern Greek language could be studied. Um, University of Washington has always had, right since its inception, has always had a program in ancient Greek, um, but there was always a gap. And now we've filled that gap. And uh, one of our fundamental goals is to have a place here at the uh, University of Washington, where students of Greek heritage, but also students from widely different backgrounds who love Greece, can find a way to study the culture and language of Greece throughout its history, uh, from ancient to modern. And that's actually the name of one of our key classes in the program, Greece, Ancient to Modern. And that's a course that uh, Dr. Klapaki and I teach. We take it in turns to explore the connections between ancient and modern, and to explore all the different kinds of Hellenism, all the different Hellenismi that are out there and which are continuing to form. And an example of which we will hear about today. We're a small program, but uh, we cover a lot. And being in the Jackson School of International Studies, that's our home. Uh, we have lots of contacts within the university um, we're also uh, in contact with various Hellen um, modern Greek studies programs and Hellenic studies programs uh, in the West uh, of the United States. Um, but also we're in, in contact with colleagues in Europe and Greece. Uh, you might know us from our uh, last appearance, our December 2021 symposium, New Perspectives on the Greek Revolution. That was uh, honoring 200 years since the Greek Revolution of 1821. And after we finished that, we realized that the next year, uh, 2022, was going to be an important year, uh, the centennial um, of the great catastrophe of 1922. 
we didn't realize at that stage that there was going to be another great catastrophe happening right now in 2022. And I think it's impossible not to think about this as, as we hear about the events of 1922 um, and, and subsequent years. And there are obvious parallels, differences too. Um, but I'm going to leave things there and um, hand over to my colleague, Dr. Klopaki, to tell us more about Dr. League and to introduce him. So, Nectaria. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone, uh, on my end too, and thank you for joining us today uh, in this webinar organized by the Hellenic Studies Program at the University of Washington. I'm Nektaria Klepaki, lecturer in the Jackson School of International Studies, and it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you all to our event today, featuring a presentation by Dr. Panagiotis Paddy League, titled Echoes of the Great Catastrophe Resounding Anatolian Greekness in Diaspora. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank those who have made today's event possible either directly or indirectly. The director of the Jackson School of International Studies, Professor Lila Fernandez, for her support of Hellenic Studies since the start of her appointment, the UW. My colleague, Alex Holland, chair of the Hellenic Studies Program for his enthusiastic assistance in the organization of this event and previous events that we uh, organized together. My colleague, Sabina Lan, chair of the European Studies Program and director of the Center for West European Studies. Without her own support of Hellenic Studies and the technical support of her amazing staff, Phil Lyon, Managing Director of the Ellison Center, Center for West European Studies and the EU Center, and Emily Bryant, today's webinar would not have been possible. I also want to thank the Ethnomusicology Department at the University of Washington for helping us promote today's event. And finally, I want to express my deep gratitude to the Hellenes of the Northwest who funded and helped launch the Hellenic Studies Program at the University of Washington, and who continue to raise funds in support of the program. The occasion of today's event is the 100 years anniversary of the Asia Minor catastrophe 1922 that marked the end of the Greco-Turkish War. As part of the centenary, events are organized around the globe this year to commemorate and reflect on the multiple legacies of this momentous event in early 20th century Greek history. In this context, the Hellenic Studies Program at the University of Washington is hosting today's lecture by Dr. League, who is an assistant professor of musicology and director of the Center for Music of the Americas at Florida State University. He holds a PhD in ethnomusicology from Harvard University where he also served as the James A. Notopoulos Fellow in the Milman Perry Collection of Oral Literature. His research has been supported by various prestigious grants, including grants from the Fulbright Foundation and the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. His publications have appeared in various scholarly journals and edited volumes, and his monograph, Echoes of the Great Catastrophe, resounding Anatolian Greekness in the Diaspora, was published in 2021 with the University of Michigan Press. Um, in addition to being an ethnomusicologist, Professor League is an active performer, composer, and recording artist. 
playing fiddles, lutes, accordion, percussion, tambuna, the goatskin bagpipe. Um, for his work, he was uh, awarded a traditional artist fellowship from the Massachusetts Cultural Council. And in 2019, he was named master artist by the Florida Folklife Program for his work performing and teaching the traditional music and oral poetry of Kalymnos in the Greek immigrant community of Tarpon Springs. In his lecture today, Dr. Lee will explore the musical legacies and dance practices of the Greek refugees of Asia Minor and their descendants by drawing on ethnographic field work and archival research conducted on the island of Lesbos and in the greater Boston area. Through analysis of handwritten music manuscripts, home-produced audio recordings, and contemporary live performances, Dr. Lee will trace the routes of repertoire, style, and intercommunal values over generations back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, um, investigating the ways that the particular musical traditions of the Anatolian Greek community have contributed to their understanding of their place in the global Greek diaspora and the wider post-Ottoman world. Before I hand it over to our speaker, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to some technical and housekeeping items pertaining to our webinar. Um, your microphones will be muted by default uh, during the uh, webinar, and please make sure that you stay muted to avoid any disruptions due to background noise. Um, after the presentation, there will be 30 minutes uh, for Q&A, and questions can be typed in the Q&A window that you can see on your screens. Um, you're welcome to type your questions uh, during the presentation instead of leaving them um, Till the very end, and we will do our best to answer as many questions as possible. Finally, um, I want to say that the presentation will be recorded. It will be made available uh, afterwards on the website of the Hellenic Studies Program for um, those who uh, cannot attend today. Panayotis, the floor is yours. Hello, everyone, and and welcome. Uh, first of all, I would just like to thank, uh, I would like to publicly thank Dr. Klapati and Dr. Holman for their kind invitation, as well as uh, to Philip and the rest of the staff for helping out with technical stuff. It's really, it's a pleasure and an honor to be invited to speak uh, and about my work and to be hosted by such a wonderful program and wonderful university. So thanks very much. Um, I'd also like, to say that uh, I see, in, I see that among the list of participants, a number of extraordinary musicians, dancers, and researchers. So I'm extremely nervous now. <laughs> I mean, slightly facetious, but uh, I see among them two of the of the world's uh, most important researchers on uh, Greek dance. So I'm relieved that I'm not speaking very explicitly about dance analysis in this uh, in this presentation. So before I share my screen and start getting into the um, the meat <clears throat> of the of my talk here, um, I just want to frame it very briefly and let you know what I'm going to be talking about um, and how we're going to go about it. I'm going to be focusing on um, this idea of the legacy of Ottoman intercommunality, which I'll I'll define in a bit, 
through the musical practices of this one particular community of Greek people uh, who I'm calling Anatolian Greeks, and in particular through one family who with roots in Asia Minor, as well as the, the island of Lesbos. Um, and we're going to be looking at some material, we're gonna be doing this through the lens of material culture. So we're going to be looking at um, some historical documents some primary source documents compiled around the turn of the 20th century, uh, music transcriptions, but this is not, this talk is not aimed at musicologists. So I'm not assuming that uh, any of you know how to read Western staff notation when that's not important. Um, though I will talk about some particular notational strategies uh, I think it's it's apparent enough, uh, even if you don't read Western notation. And then we're going to look at some homemade recordings that I think uh, flesh out the story even more. All right, so I'll just share my screen here. And we will go into... All right. So echoes of the great catastrophe resounding Anatolian Greekness in diaspora. So like I said, we're going to be focus, focusing on a particular family who trace their most immediate roots back to the island of Lesbos in the Northeastern Aegean, Mytilini. And we're in particular, we're going to be thinking about the wider musical legacy of that part of the Greek speaking world as it is a manifestation and as it continues into the 21st century, I would argue, to be a living manifestation of what Dr. Klapaki referred to and I referred to as the intercommunality that characterized the late Ottoman world. So I wanna talk for a minute about this at the outset because I, it's very important that this not be misunderstood. When I use the word intercommunality, I am drawing upon uh, several generations of very important scholarship in diaspora studies, in uh, Ottoman and Near Eastern studies, and in um, refugee studies as well, that defines communality as something of the inverse, intercommunality rather, as something like the inverse of communalism. If communalism is a, a, an inward focus on one's own self-styled bounded community, whether that be defined in terms of ethnicity, race, nationality, uh, confessional identity, then intercommunality is a recognition in particular social, political, and cultural contexts of the absolute necessity of not just interacting with people of other creeds, of other races, of other political or ideological bents, um, but actually really investing in longstanding social, economic, artistic relationships with those other communities because there's a, a recognition, whether it's explicit or tacit, that survival and, and to survive and to thrive, it is necessary to make those investments. And the overwhelming majority of scholars who study the late Ottoman period, and in particular, let's say the latter half of the 19th century up until uh, the Greco-Turkish War that followed World War I, the second Greco-Turkish War that followed World War I, um, scholars studying this period of Ottoman and Mediterranean history pretty much universally agree that 
in both urban areas and many rural areas throughout the Ottoman Empire, and particularly the Balkan Peninsula and Western Anatolia, intercommunality was pretty much the dominant um, social and ideological paradigm. And I want to emphasize that I'm, I'm, I am not romanticized, I do not intend to romanticize um, that social context or overlook the undeniably great amount of strife, of political contention, and of straight up uh, violence and genocide uh, that happened over that period of history. Not at all. I think it's very important that we recognize that. But I do think that the historical record uh, is very is unequivocal about the importance of this ideal of intercommunality in the, the, in the smooth, relatively smooth functioning of society, particularly in urban areas and particularly on the uh, Aegean coast of Asia Minor. And that's what we're gonna be focusing on. And these two photographs are, are wonderful examples of, like I said, what, what I consider the musical articulation or musical manifestation of that ideal of intercommunality. These are both photos from the island of Lesbos in the early 20th century. Um, the upper left-hand corner, we see this uh, group of revelers um, outside of a cafe neo, and then on the bottom right, um, a wonderful example of how an inter-ethnic, inter-cultural daily coexistence really characterized uh, quotidian life in the villages of Lesbos. So we have this very typical Northeastern lesbian ensemble, the Western violin, the Sanduri, initially an, an Indo-Persian instrument, and then the um, a euphonium, and then three revelers wearing very typical uh, Anatolian men's uh, breeches, I suppose, breeches, <laughs> and, uh, and fuzzy hats. So we're gonna be looking at the, this ideal of intercommunality, intercommunality, as I said, through some musical examples, and we're going to focus in particular on the life and legacy of this man, Konstantinos Nikolaou Kiriakoglu. This is a photo that was taken of him around 1919, about the time that he left Lesbos for the United States. Um, he was born in the village of Kapi in northeastern Lesbos, more on that later. Uh, but Konstantinos was a pretty remarkable person. He was extraordinary in his relative ord ordinariness. Again, based on the historical record, he was a very talented musician, arranger, band leader, multi-instrumentalist, multilingual, grew up uh, speaking Greek and Turkish, though he was only literate um, in the Greek alphabet until he came to the United States. Um, the founder of what really I think can be considered a dynasty of, of Asia Minor music making in the New, New England area. And I think just a wonderful example like I said, of ordinary extraordinariness, or I'm not sure if that's a word, but uh, extraordinary ordinary ordinariness or something like that. Um, because he's just one of, just in the realm of music, literally hundreds of musicians whom we know by name and of whom we have primary sources, whether they be uh, print documents or audio recordings, who, whose life's work was, was inextricably tied to this intercommunal genre or, or collection of genres of music practiced by people across the, uh, the spectrum of late Ottoman society, uh, Greeks, Armenians, 
Turks, Sephardic Jews, Persians, Roma people, Levantine, uh, Christian Europeans, and the like. So I, I, wanna, I want us to keep a few terms in mind as I'm speaking today. Um, the first of these, and, and all of these, though they're not interchangeable, I think they're, they're all equally important. And uh, I'm gonna just present several of them to you just to give a more well-rounded picture of some of the points that I'm trying to make here. The first is a Turkish word, sadakat, uh, which can mean a number of things in Turkish. I'm not a fluent Turkish speaker by any stretch of the imagination, but um, in the context of, of, of Ottoman art music, the word, the term sadakat is very frequently uh, understood to mean something like faithfulness to a particular genealogy of style through imitation and repetition. So, so in the, similar to other apprenticeship-based musical traditions in the world, in the traditional realm of, of Ottoman art music, what we now often call Turkish classical music, uh, musicians apprentice themselves or are apprenticed to masters at sometimes a young age and very much learn through imitation, repetition, and very importantly, once they are ready, personal uh, takes on personal uh, interpretations of their genealogy, they learn to become part of a particular school or a particular lineage, artistic stylistic lineage of, of interpretation, of artistic interpretation. That, that means things as broad as, and hard to define as style and tone and timbre, it also means things as particular as ornamentation and, and that kind of thing. So sadhakat, faithfulness to genealogy, to an idea, to a practiced idea is very important. On the heels of that, I'll, I'll throw out a Greek word, mimesis or mimesis. And I do not, I emphatically do not mean mimesis the way that it's often talked about in, for example, post-colonial literature, uh, where we're talking about a, a ritual mocking inversion. Uh, I also don't mean just straight up imitation. What I'm talking about is in the, the relatively, well, I shouldn't say universally, but one of the contemporary readings of uh, Aristotle in the poetics where the term mimesis, mimesis is coined for the first time in the ancient Greek literature. And here I'm drawing on the work of Gregory Nagy uh, and uh, his former student, Richard Martin, to Homeric classicists. So when I'm talking about mimesis, I'm talking about the performative reenactment of truth values or what a cl classicist would call mythos or mythos, myth. So in other words, this is a di inherently dialogic, diachronic, working through time, forming chains of slowly changing, but notionally unified meaning through the performance, decomposition, recomposition, and, perf and performance again in real time of art, performance art, that in the minds and in the bodies of the people doing it and the people observing or participating has something very intimately to do with what they hold true about their culture, about the values of their culture. Um, in this particular, of course, Aristotle was talking about theater when he was, he was theorizing this. Um, and then I also would suggest that we have a couple of more contemporary musicological ideas um, 
in mind, both of these I'm drawing on, for both of these I'm drawing on um, the work of the British musicologist Georgina Bourne. So we can think of everything that we're gonna be talking about as musical assemblages. So combinations of mediations that are characteristic of a particular cultural and historical period. So we're gonna be looking at sheet music, handwritten sheet music, and then we're gonna be looking at home audio recordings from two different cultural and historical periods, but bound together in terms of values and in terms of literal genealogy, because we're gonna be talking about a father and a son. And then we can also think about relayed creativity, which is this process of decomposing, composing, recomposing material in a mimetic way by a series of different agents who are very conscious of working in a lineage together. So, th so that is, is my extremely nerdy little uh, nest of concepts. And again, I'll, I'll emphasize that my argument here, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this through a musical case study, but my argument is that Anatolian Greeks, people who trace their ancestry to the Western, the Aegean coast of Asia Minor and the islands like Lesbos, like Chios, like uh, uh, these, these different places um, that are near, that are associated historically with the Asia Minor coast and particularly people from Aeolia. So that, that Northeastern part of the Greek Aegean and the Northwestern part of, of Anatolia. Um, I'm arguing that these people define their Greekness. And this is very important. They define their Greekness historically, not in opposition to other Ottoman or post-Ottoman or Balkan others. So these people historically have, I argue, lived their lives as Greeks in relation to Turks and Armenians and Sephardic Jews and Romani people and Bulgarians and Romanians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than the official line of the nationalist Greek state, which is of course, like all nationalist states, defining citizenship and personhood in opposition, right? So if you're Greek by that logic, you're Greek because you're not Albanian, because you're not Bulgarian, because you're not Turkish. I argue that something like the inverse has historically been happening among Anatolian Greeks and continues to, uh, if not be a, an explicitly verbally articulated thing, I really argue that in the contemporary practices of the diaspora, that is still the case. All right, so we're talking about this family from the village of Kapi on the island of Lesbos, which is a medium-sized, I'd say, as, as we would say, or a small, like, I'd say a small komopoli or a small town or a largish village. It's uh, right there at the northeastern tip. And we're, like I said, we're going to be uh, talking about the Kiriaku, Kiriakoglu family. So, these are the, the brothers Konstantinos and Michalis Kiriakoglu. Konstantinos, who we met before, is seated on the right. His younger brother Michalis is there on the left. They were born in Kapi to a musical family. They were both born, uh, Konstantinos was born in 1888, Michalis in 1895. Their father was a musician and clearly understood the economic potential and the cultural capital of having children who were family members who were professional musicians because he sent them both to study music in Izmir or in Smyrni, Smyrna when they were teenagers. So they lived there for four or five years studying at a Greek, one of the Greek uh, Likia or high school, high schools as, and they studied both uh, Western music theory, composition and performance as well as the Ottoman, the modal Ottoman makam system. So both Western and Eastern music, if we want to be crude and, and say it that way, of course, that's a 
that's a very uh, artificial distinction, which we will see evidence of in a few minutes. Uh, they're both multi-instrumentalists, Costadinos, who we're gonna focus on, was particularly adept at the violin and the um, piano, as well as the uh, cornet. His brother, Michalis, was an expert in, was a trombonist primarily, a valve trombone. Uh, so the brothers lived there and then returned to, um, to Lesbos where they ran, Constadinos being the eldest, ran a very successful band with two other people from the village that toured all over the Greek world at the time, um, particularly in the Balkans. So they, they went to, and when I say Greek world, I mean place, I should, I should amend that. I should say the, the late Ottoman uh, Aegean. So all over the Western coast of Asia Minor, uh, all through the Bal Balkans into Macedonia. Uh, we know this from his journal and from, he has this wonderful ledger book where he kept meticulous notes about where they played on a certain day, how much they were paid. So there's things like, um, we played at the circumcision ceremony of Osman Bey's son in Ivaluk and he paid us five golden grossia or something like that. Um, so right before the Second Balkan War, the brothers and their band emigrated to the Boston area, to Lynn, Massachusetts, where there was already a huge uh, population of people from Lesbos and from the Asia Minor coast. And they worked a lot there. There's a, here's a wonderful photo of them um, in 1925 around. It could be a little bit earlier, it's, it's uh, unclear. Um, they worked so much, in fact, that Michalis there on the far right, the trombonist, uh, got so fed up with how difficult the musician's life was that he left, he returned to Lesbos to work as a farmer because <laughs> as his grand, grandson on, on the island told me, it was easier than being a professional musician in Boston. Um, so I'll just leave that as food for thought. So they, when they got there, they found a very vibrant uh, community. Like I said, here's a picture from the Sapfo Society, the, Lesbos, the Lesbian Society picnic in Saugus, Massachusetts in 1926. Constadinos is there um, in the picture. He's actually holding a trombone, which is interesting. So at some point around, before they left Lesbos, Constantinos started collecting his band's repertoire in a big manuscript book. Um, I was introduced to this book by his grandson, uh, Gregory Kiriakoglu, when I went to his house in Western Mass one day and he showed it to me. Um, so this is this was the exterior of it. It's this old leather-bound book wrapped in tin foil with tape, and this is this inscription: "Keep for family history," written by Constadinos Kiriakoglu before 1910, born 1888, copy me Greece, violin, music, trumpet, trombone, and bass horn, given to me by him to continue in our history. This was written by his son Nikki, who we will meet later in the presentation. Um, here's the the front page, as you can see, it's dated September 23rd, 1906, which must have been when he began compiling it, I'm guessing, because there are some pieces in here that were not composed until the teens and 20s. So it's a really extraordinary work. It, um, it's got about 200 something pieces in it. Here is an index that I compiled, and it's about evenly split between songs that have a, a Greek identity, by which I mean they are either instrumental dances that are recognizably practiced by Greeks in Greek rhythms, or they are songs with Greek lyrics. And then there, about a third of the songs are what we would call Ottoman art music in a variety of genres. So this pan 
ethnic intercommunal uh, Ottoman wine house slash, um, uh, you know, like I said, art music, drawing room, parlor music in the modal makam system. And then about a third of it is clearly European style music, polkas, marches, uh, shadishes, this kind of thing. Um, there's the national anthems, for example, of the um, of the Habsburg Empire, <laughs> of uh, of Great Britain, and of a, a couple other European states. And there are there are a few Romanian style or Arab style tunes. Um, so, I want to just show you some uh, examples of the kind of stuff that Constantinos collected here. And like I said, he, he kept adding to it at least until the 1920s. Um, and this book is a great mystery because it's very unclear um, how much of a quote unquote fake book it was like jazz musicians would, would say like a collection of, of, of charts. Like if you're on the gig and somebody comes up and wants to hear Stella by Starlight or How High the Moon, just you know, you have something in front of you to remember the chord changes and remember the melody. I'm not really sure, none of us are, if that's how they used this or if it was just his own personal commonplace book, I suppose as, as a Renaissance humanist would say, a collection of personally meaningful uh, things. But it is, it is deeply revealing about his repertoire and his band's repertoire and his approach to music. And that's what's, and remember, let's think about this idea of Sadakat, faithfulness to a particular genealogy. The genealogy that I'm arguing for is this broad overarching, explicitly intercommunal orientation towards playing music. So no real separation conceptually between Greek music, Turkish music, Romanian music, French, Polish, whatever music. Um, and the evidence for this will become clear. So let's look a little bit first at some of the Western style music he notated. And I'd also like to say that the music, it's not like there are three chapters or three sections. This music is just spread out throughout the entire collection. Some of it, you would have a polka on one page and on the next page, an Ottoman prelude. My favorite page of the book, which I'm not gonna show you, has a, a, a dense Ottoman art song with lyrics in Ottoman Turkish, but written in Greek script. And at the very bottom, there's the, there's the main theme from uh, Bizet's, uh, uh, the Toreador march from Carmen. So uh, that's clearly the kind of uh, world that he lived in. So this first example, and we're gonna hear a contemporary recording of this song is from uh, an opera written in 1919, I believe, by Theophrastos Sakelaridis, who was a, an important Greek light opera composer. It's called Neraida Tujalu, uh, Mermaid of the Seashore. And, here we're going to see Constantinos's um, transcription and listen to just a few seconds of it. Blowing mystical, not just 
Okay, so you can see very clearly there, even if you don't read music, um, I'll, I'll just explain. He notated that, that the recording we heard was an adaption from the original score. And in his transcription, he was, this is a notation of um, a main melody part, which included that intro figure. So he clearly knew the music very well. Here's a wonderful example of how meticulous he was at, at transcribing things. On the left, we have the original sheet music, um, as you can see from the water, the watermark that I um, got a scan of from the, um, the uh, musical library of the National Musical Library of Greece in Athens. This is the original sheet music for a light uh, parlor song, Logia Glica, Sweet Words. And you can see, even again, if you don't read uh, music, it's very clear that he copied this meticulously from exactly this piece of music. Um, and this is very typical of, of the Western stuff. So he was very concerned with um, tradition and with faithfulness, but one thing he's not concerned about at all is authorship. And that, that's going to become um, an important thing in a minute. But uh, even though it's very clear that he must have known who the authors of most of these things were, because I mean, he was notating these songs, which were big hits throughout the Greek speaking world. Not in no place does he give any kind of uh, credit to the author. Um, and then, like I said, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Moving on to the Ottoman art music in the collection. Um, like I said, he was bilingual. He didn't write in Ottoman script, um, but he did write a lot of Ottoman, the lyrics, the Ottoman Turkish lyrics to art songs in Greek script phonetically. And here's just some examples of um, some pieces that he, uh, that he transcribed. I spent many, 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 many months going every day to, um, a collection of Ottoman music at Harvard's Widener Library and just hunting for um, these tunes. Because of course, like I said, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't tell us who wrote the different songs. And I was able to identify a bunch of them. Here we can see just from the first uh, line of poetry, um, his, his transliteration in Greek, and then a phonetic transliteration of the Greek into Roman script, and then the original Turkish. So again, if you know, if you don't Tur know Turkish, you can, you can see that. So here are all the pieces, the Ottoman cl classical pieces from the collection that I was able to positively identify. And as you can see, they stretch back to the mid 18th century. So he, sh and these are all pretty standard pieces of the repertoire. Uh, so clearly he knew, he knew the, the Ottoman art music repertoire and there's some 20th century or late 19th century compositions. So he was still keeping up um, with what was going on on the ground. So, Thinking about orality, um, another interesting thing is that he always, even though he does not use the modified notation system with different sharps and flats that is the um, that was already the standard when he was writing this stuff down, the standard in Turkish music, he does always tell us what the mode, what the makam of the piece is. And he, he just uses the regular Western sharps and flats. But for example, this piece, I'll just play the first couple of measures. Um, he writes rast, tells us it's the makam rast. It's a different ink, maybe he wrote it down later. Um, but we know because he tells us that it's rast that the particular, the third degree, if we're doing this from G. That third degree should be a little bit flatter than the, than the standard Western um, pitch would be. So this tune would be something like
that kind of thing. Um, and here's an example of an Ottoman art song, where, as you can see, he's written the Turkish lyrics in Greek at the very bottom, clearly just a very meticulous. And again, if you don't read music, you can see how dense this is and how meticulous he was. Um, but I would like to turn now to, oh, and here's another example of a, of a Peshrev, and, uh, which is a prelude. And again, even if you don't read music, you can look and see that he is pretty faithful to um, this on the left is a kind of modern um, skeleton version of this tune, or this, uh, this prelude written by um, Numan Ah, who's a, a long-necked um, lute player who's active in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, so like in jazz, for example, um, in this tradition, uh, musicians aren't reading notes off of the page as strictly as in a lot of, for example, Western classical music, there's a lot of room for personal interpretation. And that's what starts getting very interesting when we look at his transcriptions of Ottoman music. Uh, because again, if you just look at the bottom, if you don't read music, if you look at the very bottom right of both transcriptions, um, and again, the one on the left is a modern kind of standardized version of this tune that musicians would look at and play off and um, engage in, in their own variations. When he gets to the end of the tune, he's, following the melodic contour, but he's inserted all of these pers personalized um, melodic variation. These, with those, those threes with the, with the little eyebrow on top, the triplet, um, just filling out the space in a complicated way that is not present and not, is not necessarily not necessary for you to understand the actual melody. And that becomes very important when we look at what I think is the most compelling bit of evidence in this collection for this ideal of faithfulness to genealogies of style but in a mimetic way, building off of previous performances and making something new while remaining true to the core values. And that is this example. There's a few examples in this collection. Um, what we're looking at here is two different transcriptions, two different um, notations of the same piece of music. These are both uh, a prelude in the Makam Ushak written by, uh, um, Tamburi Buyuk Osmanik, who was a 19th century Ottoman composer. Um, and I'll just play the very first line of the one on the left, the way it's written, and then on the, on the right, just so you, so you get a sense of, that they're pretty similar. On the right, we have. Pretty much the same. What's fascinating to me about these, these two pieces, and they're not right next to each other in the book, um, but they're very close. Close. They're about three or four pages away from each other. So it's inconceivable to me that he had spent all the time notating the one on the left, which comes for, oh yeah, see, see, so this is book one, page 23, book one, page 29. That's, so they're six pages away from each other. It's inconceivable to me that he forgot he had notated the first one because clearly he took a lot of time at it. But if you look at the two pieces, they are very clearly the same piece, 
but they're notated in completely different ways. They sound pretty much the same. You can tell it's the same piece, but there's only, as we'll see on the next page, there's only one phrase that, which is bracketed in red, that is written and sounds exactly the same if you play it as it's written on the page. And even that's not technically the same because he wrote one of them in a different time signature than the other. So you see on the left, there's that bar line between those two phrases. This is, this is pretty mind blowing to my, my musicological brain. Um, and I think this is really solid evidence that he was engaging in a very deliberate, playful, deeply personal, constant reinterpretation of this music that he loved so much. And it's really, it mirrors performance practice because as I said, um, this, these kind of, these notations here, they read more like transcriptions of a recorded performance, which clearly they are not. Um, because if he was writing for, according to standard practice of the time, he would have written a much sparser melody giving the performer the opportunity to interpret things freely. Clearly he is going for something very different here. He's making his, taking his own personal stamp on this. And I don't know, I like to imagine that it was, like I said, a playful exercise on, on his part. So now let's turn from, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I have to set that up. So um, like I said, I, uh, I, I was turned on to this collection by uh, Constantinos' grandson, Greg. Um, and there's a lot of people in the extended family who are descended from Constantinos and his, and his um, brother who are musicians in the Boston area. And so I, got to, I was getting together a lot with um, a great saduri or dulcimer player, Dean Lambros and uh, his husband, Joe Tija. Uh, TJ, who was a guitarist and oud player, and we were playing a lot of music from Lesbos. And I, you know, I started teaching them some of this music, and we put together a concert. Um, I gave a talk about this at Yale University in 2016, and we did a concert there for the Hellenic Studies program, and played a lot of this music. Um, a lot of which certainly was probably being played for the first time uh, in <laughs> a century, um, certainly by this combination of, instru of instruments. Uh, but we all decided that our favorite piece in the collection was not one of these Ottoman art songs or not one of these songs from Lesbos, but it was actually um, a song by a Polish national nationalist composer um, who's, I don't speak Polish and I can't pronounce the name of the, um, of the, of the piece in Polish, but he's a fairly well-known um, composer. And the, the, the tune is a, it's like I said, he's a Polish, Ottoman era Polish nationalist composer. It's called Farewell to the Homeland. In the book, it's just called Polonicza, um, a Polish style tune. So this is just a couple of seconds of us playing that tune at this concert at Yale. That was a very deeply meaningful um, evening 
for myself as someone who had been welcomed so uh, with such open arms and such tremendous hospitality by that community, but also because in that audience were, were many of um, Constantinos's descendants by blood and by marriage. Um, and it was a really, really wonderful thing to be able to experience that music uh, as sound when they all had known it only as this dusty old um, tome. So in the remaining time, we're gonna talk about uh, Constantinos's son, Nikki Nikolaos, who was born in 1924 uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts. So Nikki, like his dad, was a barber and a musician. And he grew up with the, the lesbian and Asia minor musical tradition at home, at church functions, etc. But he also, like uh, many Greeks of the era who came of age, Greek Americans rather, I should say, but also Greeks who came of age in the 1940s, was really taken by the explosion of popular music, buzuki focused, that long neck lute that he's holding, popular music that was uh, that took the Greek world by storm in the 1940s and 1950s, the kind of post-rebetica, if you're familiar with that genre, um, pop music, which owes a lot of its DNA to the music of the Asia Minor Greeks. Um, I think sometimes that's overemphasized, but um, I would say definitely the lion's share of it. Um, so I find Nikki very interesting because he did something very analogous to what his dad did. He never, he didn't read or, well, he did read music, but he, as far as we know, he didn't write any music down. Um, but he did make a lot of recordings of himself in the 1950s. He bought he bought a, an old Westcore reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And he used, as his, as his widow Dottie um, said to me, he would come home every day, he'd close up the barbershop for lunch. And while I was making his lunch, he would sit down and plunk, pluck stuff out. And then he would do it also at night and especially on the weekends. And so I got access to these recordings about, it's about three hours of recordings that he made in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And they're really fascinating because he doesn't record any of the music that his father taught him until the very end, until his own kids were starting to play music. So in, in the 1980s, when he was um, getting, starting to think about retiring and his, and his kids were grown and starting to have families of their own. Um, then he started playing old lesbian songs on the piano because they were getting interested in traditional music. What he was doing in the 50s and 60s was taking contemporary pop hits uh, by people like uh, singers like Runaris, which the Greeks in the audience will, will certainly know about, um, and stripping them down. He would go out and buy the record and learn it and just make his own solo buzuki versions and sing in, in his quite beautiful voice. So um, I'm, going to, I'm going to pause the slideshow, although I'm gonna keep sharing my screen and we're gonna come and look at the supplemental materials from my book because that's the easiest way to uh, do this. Um, can you, see the screen that I'm, okay, great. Um, so he, he recorded a lot of these songs, but we're gonna focus on one. Um, again, I, I believe this is recorded by Gunaris uh, first. It's called Apopse Puta Halasa. Tonight, I trashed the place. Um, so it's him, him playing Buzuki, an unknown person playing Tuberleki, the goblet drum. And he's doing a version of this song. It's very close to the original re recording. It's, it's, it's jagged and angular and, uh, the musical, it's a little bit aggressive and uh, the music, the performance I think is, 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 is very suited to the darkly theatrical and pretty frankly, very misogynistic um, content of the lyrics, as you can see in the, you'll see in the translation as I scroll down the screen. Um, 
So we'll listen to a little bit of that. Pay attention to the timbre of his voice. It's very melismatic. It's very like 19th, it's very 1950s uh, Greek pop music, kind of pre, pre-Skiladiko, I would say. Um, again, the, the Greeks note I'm talking about this kind of like nightclub music. Um, so Nikki Kiriakoglu and an unknown drummer. Okay. Dark and horrifying as a song, uh, musically very interesting. And uh, if you know the original recording, if we have more time, I can play that for you as well. Um, you can see it's, it's quite faithful. Now, what's really interesting to me is about 10 years later, he made another recording of this song. He did this several times. Um, and this time he recorded it not on the buzuki, but on the piano. He was a great pianist. And he approaches it completely differently. And by this point, he had gotten a little bit older. According to his son, he had started to get more interested in playing uh, repertoire that he had learned from his father and just reflecting more on, on uh, that aspect of his musical heritage. And what we hear here, I argue, is just in the same way that Consadinos, his father, was producing these mimetic, mimetically rich alternate versions of songs and tunes based on an ideal of, of faithfulness not to the original, but faithfulness to the ideal of decomposing and recomposing and producing new versions that are not quite copies that reference previous copies. He, he Like I said, he performs this on the piano, this very same song, uh, but you will hear instantly that it's a very different approach. He starts out with an improvised uh, modal, what we call a taksim, taksim, an improvised melodic flourish that outlines the contours of the mode. And then he launches into the song. And those of you who are familiar with the music and the style of the uh, lesbian Sanduri, the hammer dulcimer, will, I think, be surprised at how much like a Sanduri this sounds. In fact, I, when I was doing my fieldwork on Lesbos, I would play this for friends and they immediately, until the piano came in, especially if we were listening to it on my crappy laptop speakers or something like that, or on my phone, um, everyone assumed it was a Sanduri. And then when the chords on the piano come in, they all would, sit up like this. So that alone is interesting, but what's also interesting is the timbre of his voice and the way that he enunciates. It's very, very, very much not like the previous version, which was an imitation of Greek pop singing. This is very lesbian. It's very Anatolian in diction, in timbre. Even You can even hear his lesbian accent coming through with the, with the thick L, the apopsi puta halasa rather than And significantly, this is the only audio recording of his father, Constantinos, who died in 1974. Um, so he would have been an old man. He would have been almost 80 years old. And we hear him singing very faintly, but it's definitely his voice. So I'm told by his grandson, Nikki's son, 
definitely Constadinos' voice singing together in unison with Miki. So let's have a listen to that before we conclude. I'll just find it. So again, Miki's playing piano and his, his father is singing with him. I neglected to mention something very important. This is a zebekiko, uh, the, the nine beat dance that we, in most of the Greek world, we think of as being a solo men's dance, but um, in the Anatolian Greek context, it is almost always a face-to-face karslamas type dance, danced by, it can be danced by anybody, but in particular when it's danced by men who are, who have a very close affective or familial relationship, like for example, father and son, it's the ideal is for it to be very, slow and as they say heavy which means laying behind the beat leaving a lot of space in between the articulations you can really hear that in this example <laughs> powerful examples of some very powerful, very tangible examples of this ideal of faithfulness to an explicitly, I would argue, um, intercommunal articulation of, of Greek ethnicity and specifically Anatolian Greek ethnicity that depends on a very conscious engagement with that shared past and to a large degree of the tragedy of how that shared past came to a, a fiery end. Um, and also I think a very conscious articulation in the, present, in the present moment of different types of paths towards a future as members of a transnational diaspora that really doesn't have a homeland anymore. So I'll conclude there. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ling, for this uh, very rich uh, and informative uh, presentation. 
on aspects of uh, uh, the musical traditions of the Anatolian Greeks that were um, very little known, or to me at least, uh, that I don't have a musicological background completely unknown, and uh, as opposed to some uh, people from our audience as well. Um, so um, we are ready to take uh, questions uh, from the audience. You can uh, type them in the Q&A window. Um, in the meantime, um, I would like to, uh, to start off by asking you if you can um, elaborate a little bit more on the notion of intercommunality that you uh, discussed. And uh, uh, if you would like to perhaps give other examples, um, uh, musical examples, um, and also, was I was wondering, um, um, you know, how do you position yourself uh, in the context of the wider literature um, about the uh, tense relations between uh, the Greeks in uh, Smyrna and Anatolia vis-a-vis -vis the Ottomans, at least from um, the early 20th century onwards, uh, because previously there was this uh, notion that the, the relationships were, were good, they were supportive of each other and so on. But uh, from early 20th century on, things seem to be changing. Yeah, thank you for that. To the first point, other, other examples of, of this uh, so-called intercommunality. Uh, musically speaking, I think they're everywhere. I mean, if we look at, I mean, there's so many great examples from that period of the of the teens and twenties, the kind of first generation of the the boom of the recording industry in that part of the world. Studios primarily in Istanbul, but also to a lesser extent in in Izmir and then in Athens after uh, 22, Athens and Thessaloniki, and of course New York City and Chicago and stuff. Um, but you know, I mean, if you ask a Greek, and I've I've done this experiment many times, um, but if you ask someone who's an aficionado of this music, you know, and people use all these different names for it, Mikrasiatica, music pertaining to Asia Minor, which is a political term and a marketing term um, that's very recent more than anything else, but music associated with the Greeks of Asia Minor. You ask them, who, who is the, like name the void, like name the singer who you think most exquisitely exemplifies that world. And I would say like seven out of 10 people are gonna say Rosa Eskenazi, who is a Turkish speaking Sephardic Jew, right? But she's saying, she sang, recorded some of the most beloved and important um, music in that repertoire in Greek for sure, because she spent most of her life in a majority Greek speaking environment, also in Turkish, which was her native language, a little tiny bit in Ladino, not very much. Um, in some other languages too. And uh, she recorded some things in French and, um, and I, I don't think she recorded anything in Armenian, but um, so, but, but a lot of those other great singers and musicians, I mean, Rosa's band was a very typical one. She was Sephardic Jew from Istanbul as the singer, an, Ud, an Armenian Oud player, who I think was initially born in, in Izmir and then um, a violinist and Kanun player who was half Macedonian, half, half Greek from Northern, you know, from the area outside of current Thessaloniki. So uh, that was a very typical group. I mean, if you look at the, the musicians on all, pretty much all those recordings, um, that's that was a very, very typical makeup of those orchestras. And again, from the primary source 
and secondary source documents we have, it seems like the audiences that they were working to entertain, depending of course on the venue and on the geographical location, more or less were this were just as um, intercommunal or or ethnically slash uh, uh, religiously or whatever diverse. Um, there, there are also a lot of other examples in this particular community, and I'm not trying to, I, I should say, I do not mean to conflate the, um, the migrant context in the Boston area with people who stayed there or people who wound up in Greece, um, very extremely different uh, contexts for obvious reasons. But in the Asia Minor Greek community, in the Boston area, in New England, I can say absolutely after living, I lived there for 15 years, I spent a lot of time with people, particularly people, lesbian Americans, but also other people. It's very clear to me that they defined their Greekness in a very affectionate and effective relation to particularly material culture that's associated with other ethnic groups. Um, just in Constantinos's family, some of the most prized possessions are, you know, Ottoman Florins, you know, that somebody made into a necklace. Um, his his daughter-in-law's favorite piece of jewelry was a um, the Hand of Fatima um, necklace that he brought, that was part of her mother's dowry or something like that. Um, they had my friend Dean, who's the Saduri player in the video, his favorite uncle growing up was a guy from Lesbos named Francois. That was his name. <laughs> you know, he was a lesbian Greek speaker um, because they had, because her his parents, best friend and next door neighbor was a Levantine Christian guy named Francois, you know I mean? That's just, and in, in the food, of course, and all these kinds of things. Now, uh, I think the second half of your question was how do I position myself? Yeah, so this is, this, the whole reason I belong to a different, um, I, in my mind, think of it in terms of ethnic groups. I think there's a very good argument for that. It's not, I recognize that I'm a very, I'm an outlier in terms of, you know, modern Greek, uh, scholars, but I really do think that we can productively think of Greek, like regional linguistic Greek identity in terms of ethnicity. I mean, that's where the term comes from anyway, in the Greek context. So I belong to a different ethnic group, I suppose. My family, uh, my father's Irish, so a very different ethnic group. But my, uh, my mother's family is from uh, the island of Tefalonia. Um, but I also have family roots um, in the town of Galaxivi uh, near Delphi. So um, I grew up with a completely different cultural musical orientation. I grew up in Tarpon Springs, Florida. So all the music and culture I grew up around was from the island of Kalinos on the opposite side of the Greek world. Very different. I never really heard Asia Minor Greek music until I was in my 20s when I was I moved to New York City, really. Or I'd moved to Greece and then I moved to New York City. And um, it blew my mind because it was just so different from everything that I had always experienced. And then when I was living in Boston, it just happened, that happened to be the Greek music that I was able to play because that's what the majority of people when I moved there in the early 2000s were doing because that was their own family tradition. So I, I came to this initially because it was very exotic to me. It was very different. And it was a very different articulation of Greekness than I was used to both socially and musically. Um, you know, I grew up surrounded by people who defined themselves as Greek very much in opposition to um, the Venetian, you know, the, the dark legacy of the Venetian occupation, which is what <laughs> how they talked about it, even when I was growing up in the, in the 80s. Um, so this was a very fascinating thing to me. And of course, I had encountered plenty of nationalistic you know, people. And so it was, it was very novel to me for people to 
people who had been born in the Boston area and for a lot of whom don't really even speak Greek to speak very nostalgically um, about this partially completely fantasized, but also very real um, shared past. Um, and to the point about, you know, sectarian violence and tension, um, those stories, you know, like I think for every Greek family who wound up somewhere else than Asia Minor, who's from Asia Minor and wound up somewhere else in the teens or twenties has at least secondhand stories of terror. Um, and so I, there's plenty of those in this, in these families and the, in the lives of, of, in the mythologies of people who I interacted with in Boston and on Lesbos, but I would say the, the greater, much greater balance of it is, is kind of a, a nostalgia tinged with heartbreak and regret and this kind of weird longing that people are very, very clear about how weird it is, this weird kind of like fantasy longing for this cultural context that doesn't exist anymore and maybe never actually did the way that they imagine it. But, but it has a lot to do, it plays a very powerful role in their lives. Um, very, a very active political role in their lives too, I should say. Um, thank you. And uh, I will take one uh, question from the audience uh, now for you. So um, Olga Lebanuk um, asks, is asking, could you say uh, more about what happens in the diaspora how being in the diaspora affected the music itself? Yeah, thank you, Olga, if I may. That's a very important question. So it's, it's hard to know where to, where to begin. I, I could say a few things, I think specifically about this, this case study, this, these families, and then I can say a few things about just, I think, broad, more broadly speaking. Uh, Number one, I think the most obvious thing is being in an environment, being for generations now, three or four generations in an environment that is not primarily Greek speaking, in which Greek people and Greek culture are in an absolute minority, uh, which is very different from the context of an most Anatolian Greeks, right? I mean, most of them were concentrated in urban, at least the ones who are in urban areas, were concentrated in areas where, at least in their neighborhoods, which are very large swaths of these cities, um, Greek was the first language or an equal first language with Turkish or with Armenian or something like that, right? Um, as I mentioned, most of the people who are playing this music now, who are the, you know, I mean, Konstantinos's uh, grand, grand, granddaughters are, you know, now playing, you know, playing this music uh, at a high level and they don't speak a word of Greek. Um, like literally they don't speak a word of Greek. I mean, maybe like, maybe like, Kalimera, but that's you know about it, right? Um, but that's not, and that ha that has an impact on the music. Obviously, if you don't speak the language, it's hard for you to sing. But this family's tradition seems to be almost exclusively instrumental in terms of the tradition that Constantinos brought and very explicitly documented. Nikki, of course, as we saw, sang a lot. He was a native Greek speaker um, and spoke very les heavy lesbian Greek. Inevitably, of course. You hear it in style, in articulation. It's a lot harder to, to be faithful to, to a tradition in a recognizable way and being without having constant dialogue, artistic dialogue with other musicians who primarily play that music. Um, so that's definitely noticeable, but, but those people of that generation 
the very serious ones in the New England area have spent a lot of time, have invested a lot of time and resources in going to Greece, particularly going to Lesbos, but also spending time in Turkey, because um, that's one of the things that they all seem to agree on. They all, they all say things like, oh, well, in Greece, people have lost, musicians have lost the spirit of this music, or it's not, you know, it's too westernized, or it's too whatever, you know, I, I would rather, I'm going to go to Istanbul to, to take a workshop or to listen to music rather than spend all my time on Lesbos because it's closer to, I think it's closer to the spirit of what my grandfather, my great-grandfather brought over here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a very interesting attitude, right? Um, and I mean, it's kind of, it's hard, it's, politically that's a, maybe not in 20, maybe not in the late, you know, second decade of the 21st century when I was doing this field work, Maybe that maybe that's not like a, a really eye, eyebrow raising political stance, but um, it would have been a, a generation before for sure. Um, so those are reasons. I mean, one of the interesting people who I spent a lot of time with, who I know a lot of people on the call know very well, who I didn't talk about in this presentation, is a singer named uh, Sophia Belidu. Sophia Belidis, who's a who grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, in a community of refugees who came in in 1922, 23, who were Turkish speaking. Orthodox Christians from the interior of Anatolia. So she, her family did not speak Greek, right? Um, but she grew up, so she grew up at church, for example, in the, you know, 50s and 60s, hearing, you know, church functions, hearing all this Greek music with lyrics in Turkish, but she said she didn't realize it was Turkish until she was older, until she started to actually meet Greek speaking people, because it was the language her Greek parent, her Greek uh, dad, spoke to his parents, so it must have been Greek. It was actually Anatolian Turkish. Um, so that's a, that's another very interesting uh, case study that I think gives some suggestions of answers to those questions. Because what happens, you know, losing the Greek language in diaspora is one thing, but what if your identity as a musician is as somebody who sings Greek music because it's your ancestry, but your direct ancestors actually did not speak Greek, even though they were Greek people. Um, it's a very interesting um, dialectic that Sophia and I had a lot of great conversations about. Thank you. Um, um, I, I would like to, to ask a kind of a, a question that is uh, moving away from um, music a little bit, but is connected with uh, uh, Asia Minor and the legacies. And so uh, recently, in, uh, a year ago, we were, um, commemorating the bicentennial of the Greek revolution. Uh, mm -hmm. And comparisons have been made between the bicentennial and the centennial of 1922 that we're commemorating this year. Uh, mm -hmm. So my question is, do you think that the 1922 centennial is receiving as much attention by the academic community and the wider public as the bicentennial of the Greek revolution uh, or not? Uh, by the wider public, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And um, now, in my academic circles, I mean, I think the centennial of 1922 is receiving, I don't know, it's a hard thing to answer. I don't know. I mean, part of the, I think that uh, because there is so much well, there, there, there are nationalist politics very much entwined in both of those commemorations, right? Um, 
I think that my sense is that there's a little bit more, there's a, there's a little bit more caution on the part of academics in this moment right now to do 1922 related things. I, um, again, I'm just talking about my personal circles um, because there's a tension between wanting to commemorate, wanting to do something that's more than a, just a commemoration, right? But also wanting to work really closely, um, you know, as academics, as people who generally, generally speaking, have fairly, I guess the right word these days is progressive ideas about um, dialogue and about um, collaboration. There's a tension between those things I mentioned earlier and the desire to work with colleagues in other, like in Turkey, for example, on some of these initiatives. And as we know very well, it's, it's difficult to, to be a professor at a public university or even a private university in Turkey and speak openly about things like the Armenian genocide, which is an essential, which you can't have a, con I mean, I am of the opinion, you can't have a real conversation about 1922 without having a conversation about the last 40 years of the Ottoman Empire, which is characterized as you rightly pointed out, Nectaria, by a lot of violence and a lot of tension and a lot of antagonism. Um, strangely, I think it's easier to talk about 1821 because it's farther in the past and it's easier to be critical of the Greek state that emerged. And it's easier to be critical of the geopolitical maneuvering that was happening in 1821 because to be blunt, nobody really cares in this political moment about 1821, like the, the major players, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, but there's a lot of like, you know, if we're gonna be critical about 1922, you know, there are, there are a lot of people and institutions that are really invested in setting narratives very competing narratives about what 1922 meant and means today. Um, that's my, again, my, like I said, my take on it. And I, I'll walk back to what I said. I don't, I shouldn't say nobody really cares about it. But that's a ridiculous statement, but I mean, it doesn't carry the same amount of tension. The stakes aren't as high. And like I said, it's easy, it's very easy to criticize, to, to engage in deep historicized criticism of everything that happened around 1821 because it's 200 years in the past and we live in a very different world in a lot of ways, you know, in some ways. Um, so that's my, again, that's my sense, but I have, even though in many ways, in most of the ways that matter, I consider modern Greek studies more of my intellectual and social home than I do musicology. Um, I do have my, feet in both worlds and it's, you know, it's difficult sometimes to keep my finger on the pulse of, of what's going on, you know, especially in terms of the ever shifting politics around the work we do, because I spend so many, so many hours like with my headphones, like listening, trying to learn, trying to figure out how to talk about timbre and, you know, like gesture in, in, in dance performance and that kind of thing. Right, thank you, Panagiotis. Uh, uh, and uh, um, following up with, you know, this, um, the comparisons between the two, um, the centennial and the bicentennial, um, I, I was wondering if, um, so last year, the, the sort of scholarly and public understanding of the Greek revolution 
um, we saw that it coalesced around approaches that tried to uh, uh, to point out it's the European dimensions of the event, uh, even the global dimensions of the event. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, you could tell us a little bit as to um, a few things as to whether scholars in your view today reassess the Asia Minor uh, catastrophe uh, along similar lines? Is it seen as an event of uh, significance, historical significance only for uh, uh, Greece and Turkey or does it go beyond that? Does it have transnational dimensions, European and perhaps global? Sure. Well, based on the scholarship, um, I, again, I'm not a historian. Um, so I should preface what I'm about to say by admitting that I am not up to date on the latest scholarship on that topic. But I think it's uh, my opinion as a researcher and as somebody who, do, who does try to um, read and engage in, in debate as, as, as widely and as vigorously as I can, um, is that I think, I don't think there's any way there's any way you can make any kind of argument that holds any water that it was not a very European event. I mean, regardless of your political orientation or regardless of, of, of your ideology, you, can't, you cannot dispute the fact that the Asia Minor disaster, whatever we, or as, you know, as the modern Turkish state calls it, the war of independence, um, happened in large part because of the intervention of the great powers of Europe, particularly the British. Um, I mean, Lloyd George was really like pushed a very willing Venezuela, you know, out of the airplane without a parachute. Um, but uh, but it's it's not just we can't lay blame necessarily at anybody's. Well, we can probably lay blame at a lot of people's feet. But um, not only was the was there a lot of encouragement and support in various ways for the the Greek invasion of, of Asia Minor by European powers. But I mean, the, the result, the result of that conflict completely changed modern European history. I mean, the, the fact, the existence of the Republic of Turkey, rather than it becoming what the Greek government, what Venizelos and the Greek government wanted, which would probably would have wound up being a tiny little kind of tiny little republic akin to like, I don't know, I can't think of a good example, but you know, something with no, geopo no geopolitical power to speak of, whose resources, um, whose tremendous natural resources would have been just uh, carved up by the great powers, wound up being this extraordinarily large, consolidated, politically, militarily powerful uh, nation, modern nationalist, secular state, at least at the beginning, um, that has that has been an extraordinarily major player in global politics and European politics for the last hundred years. Um, I mean, Erdogan is 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 presenting himself as the only person who can broker peace in Ukraine right now. I mean, that's that's you you can't. We it's difficult for us to imagine a reality right now without Turkey being the the juggernaut that it is. Is. Um, and that directly affects Europe in, in profound ways. Um, so I think it's, I think the, regardless of arguments that we could have, like semantic or ideological arguments about like what Europe means or like how European Greece or Turkey or Asia Minor or whatever it is, 
um, in terms of European history, like the history of Central and Western Europe, the 1922 was very much a, an inflection point, I think, in European history. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, now I'll hand it over to uh, my colleague, Alex Holman, who uh, we have about five minutes left. We can wrap up and uh, you're welcome to ask a question too, if there is anything you want to ask. Thank you. And thank you very much, uh, Panayoti. Um, what I'm really struck with is how, you know, your scholarly labors and your, your life that you lead is, is a kind of mimesis of, in some ways, of these performers um, in, in, the early, uh, in the early 20th century. Um, the straddling of disciplines, um, you mentioned yourself that you, you have to sort of negotiate and um, I think it's a strength, but you have to negotiate your relationship to uh, modern Greek studies, Hellenic studies and musicology. And then even within musicology, I, I imagine, I don't know the field, but you know, ethnomusicology is its own discipline within that. And I imagine there's also a kind of negotiation of boundaries there. Um, I've, I've always thought that that kind of having to negotiate boundaries and having these different loyalties makes for very interesting scholarship. It makes for very interesting life. Um, and um, I'm glad that um, you know we ended up talking about 2022 as, as well, and um, the the example of how you know a, a country or a region on seemingly on the edge ends up affecting things much more sort of closer to the the center and the involvement of the great powers somehow you know that was there in 18. 1821 as well uh, as in 1922 um, the the old firm uh, is 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 there um, and that that's just amazing that that there is that continuity um, sad too that we can't seem to break out of it um, these were just my sort of thoughts as as I as I listened to this and um, I was also captured just by the the beauty of the music, especially the recording of the the piano, which you're absolutely right. I can see why people thought that 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 was a sort of dulcimer type kanuni instrument. Um, so thank you very much, and I really hope that we can have you back in in person um, and and work more together. Thank you. We're, We'll follow your your work. <laughs> Thanks so much. It, it, like I said, it's 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 uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure, and I I absolutely I hope that we can do that as well. I'm I'm, I'm sure we I'm sure we can. There's there's so many fantastic uh, musicians in Seattle who play this type of music and other genres of music at, a, yeah. at an absurdly high level, as I'm sure you all know. So it would be fun to put something together. Um, but thank you very much. I I really appreciate the invitation. I appreciate everyone. Uh, coming and, and listening to what I had to say. Um, it really means a lot to me, you know, I mean, those of us who have written, you know, academic monographs know that it's, um, oh man, 
it, it takes a long time and a lot of effort and it's very lonely. It's yeah. very, it's very lonesome work. And um, it's a really precious thing to be able to share these ideas and these thoughts with people in real time and especially to hear, to engage in dialogue about it and be challenged about things, challenged to think harder, deeper from different angles about, about things. Um, Cause it's so easy to get, you know, into our little, um, you know, alleys or, or lanes, no matter how vigilant we are. So I really appreciate the opportunity to reflect upon this work. And, um, and if anyone uh, is interested in, in the book itself, of course you can, um, you can buy it from the University of Michigan Press, but you know, like most academic books, it's quite expensive. So if that's prohibited, um, just email me. And um, you know, there's different, there's like discount codes and things like that. And you know, anyway, but thank you so very much, everyone. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can all get together in person sometime in the not too distant future. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Panayotis. Thank, thank you all. You, <laughs> we'll and we'll we'll talk soon. <laughs>